The fire in my words. Fire. Talk, talk. History unfolded. Here on this day. I love what's cooking. The mic is hot. I'm ready to I'm go. I'm ready to go. Come on. Hey, slab, mill, cypher, in effect. We ready for warfare. We ready to give back. Give it back. Crossroads, cypher's on deck. Recycling guard science. Salute my mic check and walk with it. All hell, fuck a lesson. Get down. Get him up. Fuck him up. Mill, cypher. You will agree. But everywhere that we go. That we crush these bums. It's the return of the guard. Let the dollars be born. Close your mouth from shock and get your peoples on a horn. Tell them that I reforged the movement sword and I'm ready to get it on. Destined Aragorn, battle tested. I'm in the struggle worldwide, bringing coaches out the nooks and crannies. It's our time for rhyme elevation. We stiffen the competition. He's back. Handcuffed on the ground. And this man felt like he had the right to take his life. And then the fact that the other officers stood there is what's worse and didn't tell his partner to get up or all the other officers that was on this man back. He saw that he urinated on himself and he heard him cry out that I cannot breathe, I can't breathe. And his response was, well, if you talking, you can breathe, seriously? That's your response to something like this? That's how all of them think. People are upset and they're tired. And being black in Minnesota already has a stigma and a mark on your back. So living over in South Minneapolis and being black, please, it's over with. And this, the fact that they think it's okay to shoot tear gas or shoot anything into a crowd of protesters is ridiculous. We have the right to be here. We have the right to protest. We're not threatening anybody's life. I used to live in this neighborhood and all these white cops over here treat everybody exactly the same whose skin color is not theirs. I'm sick of that. I'm over it. I'm tired of it. And ain't nothing gonna happen, and that's so f***ed up. All right, Ron Holland here, and a good day to you, family. We are going to jump right uh, into this thing. We have, of course, uh, seen the flames and the charred vehicles and smoke billowing into the night sky because people are tired. We have seen crowds grow exponentially from one small town in Minneapolis to a host of cities across the country. 30 cities, organized, chaotic, peaceful, and of course, destructive. People are expressively angry and rebellious and they are expressing their frustration and their rage and their exhaustion. There is this enormous sense of hopelessness that things will not change. And from what I've seen over the course of two days, three days, this whole week, seems justice is as elusive as it has always been. Because we are already seeing efforts to find a way for these officers to escape justice. We're already seeing efforts to blame George Floyd's death 
on George Floyd. Rather than his murder being precipitated by those thugs with badges, they are essentially blaming George Floyd for underlying health conditions as the cause of his own death. It is essentially being said that that thug, Chauvin, didn't suffocate Floyd while jamming his knee and pressing Floyd's throat upward of nine minutes. They're suggesting that that action didn't rob Floyd of his life, but that it was his health. As if we didn't see murder happen before our eyes. It saddens me. As I watched, as many of you uh, did, the Minnesota AG and the FBI and the other investigatory bodies equivocate on arresting these murderers and issuing charges initially. Instinct screamed inside that we were in the early stages of efforts to impose the least amount of consequence if that arrest were to happen. Their words, their body language, it was both subtle and it was screaming at the same time. It's sort of an oxymoron. But I've seen this playbook far too many times to place confidence in a system that is representative of injustice. I watched them with bated breath as the state attorneys demonstrate the weakest efforts to get justice for George Floyd and his family. They actually signaled to us that an arrest and charges may not be supported by evidence. It was signaling in advance. And I was sickened at that very moment because I knew even after the arrest of that thug Chauvin, his being charged with third degree homicide and releasing the autopsy report gives them enough room so that at trial, the seeds of reasonable doubt with regard to intent will be enough for his peers to pave the way to once again rob a grieving family and an angry community. Rob us of justice. And it is unfortunate, family, that the power of the state and the ability to cover their sadistic behaviors our community is vulnerable to yet another disappointment. And as I shared with my wife and my kids and uh, folks around the radio station, we need to brace ourselves, family, for yet another disappointment. Because as I was reading uh, earlier this week, the qualified immunity statutes law enforcement enjoys, it appears to me that they indeed might just get off. Now, yeah, they lost their jobs. But the question is, will they be convicted given what we've seen, that weak demonstration of pursuit of justice that I saw 
will we actually see a conviction? I reserve my right to be skeptical. And I think this is why we've seen one of the greatest symbols of oppression, a police precinct go up in flames. It's because it is a place where injustice has burdened our soul, our collective soul, the uh, collective soul of the community. And it is forever scorching hopes of fairness and uh, equality and, and true justice, often dwindling and often withering on a vine. Is those high ideas that our community enjoys equal protection under the law when it is the law? That arouses uh, the greatest of disappointment. And that third precinct that went up in flames, it is where the blue wall of silence towered justice and bullies with badges and uh, bigots with guns spilled from its bowels to unleash a torrent of brutality and excessive force and unjustified homicide and white privilege and indifference and intolerance and dehumanization. All of that was unleashed on that community because they have experienced years of these kinds of behaviors from these thugs with badges it went up in flames because people cried for arrest and because people knew instinctively that precinct like many around this nation houses a rampant bigotry and a flagrant disregard for black life and an unrestrained flouting of our humanity. Now sure there, you know, I've seen the videos so folks can understand and there are some discussions about agent provocateurs interspersed in the ranks of protesters igniting flames and and igniting passions and destroying property and if it's discovered that that is indeed true then these folks ought to be arrested but i can tell you in the hearts and mind of my people the destruction of symbols of oppression is but a metaphor for the destruction of our confidence in this system and our collective soul. And that is why there are protests in 30 cities around the country. That's why protesters are confronting police. That's why the cover of darkness arouses tendency toward violence and destruction of property. That's why. Confrontations with police and secret service in front of the White House grew more intense because the biggest representation of intolerance and bigotry and prejudice and disregard of black life is that cretin that sullies the Oval Office. Yes, people of all shades and colors and descended on the White House because to suggest people be shot is an offense and it is a blatant exhibition of racism. When the looting starts, the shooting starts, I think the quote is from his Twitter. You don't think people are incensed by that? I don't condone looting stores. But I understand the anger and the frustration 
people are protesting because people are tired. We are tired of lies. We are tired of the promises that are completely false. We are tired of the convoluted arguments that allow murderers in blue uniform to escape justice. This is weighing heavy on our hearts. You see the difference between Afrocentrism and Eurocentrism. We see things as a collective, as a communal. So when one thing happens to us, we feel it instinctively. It's in our bones. It's in our instincts. I think the Africans called it mother wit because we are internally connected by a collective trauma. So when we know and feel that one person has been offended and murdered or killed we all feel it and we all feel that sense of injustice this is an enormous weight on our chest we scream aloud we scream internally and it's often the case that our cries have fallen on deaf ears that's why things have been burned and the charred Uh, remnants of oppression and the infrastructure of economic vitality is in ruin and litter the landscape of a city where murderers in blue uniform will inevitably escape consequence. I understand riots because I understand pain and frustration. Counterintuitive as it might be to burn down stores and shops and destroy property. It's not my preferred expression of outrage. But if there is a physical replica of how we feel inside, it is the rubble of a crumbled building spilled in a parking lot. It is reflective of a burdened soul that finally succumbed To the weight of its oppression. And that's how we feel. Don't condone some of the behavior that we're seeing on television. But I have to ask myself, had I seen that murder unfold before my very eyes? We are careening toward that inevitable moment, family, where the crowd will put down their cell phones and physically intervene when thugs with badges are beating and brutalizing and snatching the life of our people. We are fast approaching. Now, some would argue that we've already arrived at this place where police are the enemy of our people and the only way to get justice is to prevent police from murdering our people. Ron Holland, how? How how will you, how would you prevent this? Look, I might be wrong. I don't know. I don't want to incite anybody to do anything. That is not my intent. But social media is replete with example after example and case after case and situation after situation where people are being brutalized in front of the camera. These police officers are wearing body cams. They know that they are being filmed and yet their behavior isn't altered at all. 
their demeanor isn't altered at all. They know that they are being filmed. They don't care. So I'm afraid that every police interaction where there appears to be excessive force or brutality or perhaps some other escalation, it will arouse bystanders and the crowd to physically intervene to the detriment of themselves and to the detriment of police. I don't want that to happen, but we are at that moment where people will no longer sit back and watch someone's life being snatched away. And it's good that it's being recorded. I applaud folks for standing up and, and using that particular apparatus to make sure that this thing is being recorded. But at some point, there are going to be people in that crowd who will no longer stand idly by and watch another life snatched away. There is this strong sense that white bigots and racists have long infiltrated the ranks of police and are exacting their bigotry and their prejudice on our people. And it is impossible to distinguish who these bastards are because they are white and they have the power of the state behind them. And given that as the backdrop to what we have been seeing, people are tired. And they are angry and they are frustrated and they are looking for an opportunity to strike back and it will not be in a riot. Law enforcement has done next to nothing substantial to weed these bigots out. And so what we are left with ultimately are families that are having to bury their loved ones because nobody stood up at the moment where it really counted. Now, I'm not blaming folks for not wanting to intervene because ultimately, you can be charged for that. Ultimately, uh, it could escalate to the point of death. I understand that implicitly, but I am telling you, we are at that moment, family, And it is a grave situation. You know, I had a very interesting conversation with a police friend of mine last week, actually. And he recounted some of the things that black officers have to deal with. And I'm going to cover that uh, more fully. But what I will tell you is that while there are racial taunts in the precincts and social media posts are a red flag, the infrastructure of law enforcement is not nimble enough to pin these bastards down. That's why they have used the blue uniform to cover their bigotry. They are in the ranks. And I'm afraid that the inevitable consequence is a community vulnerable to attack and brutality and excessive force. And it is coupled with an immunity that gives these bastards free reign. White thugs with badges and a gun are no different than the lynch mobs that dragged a black man from his home to hang him from a tree as the family watched helplessly in utter terror as their loved one 
disappeared in the dark of night, it is not until those families and our people, and most importantly, the crowd, is equally armed and equally determined to stop these murders and these beatings and this brutality from happening. If we want justice, we have got to be willing to stop injustice from happening in front of our eyes. Because waiting for the court system to solve this is not doing us any justice. And we know it because we see the end result. There's a few memes circulating social media juxtaposing the actions of police with regard to protests by heavily armed white right wing militia groups. That's being juxtaposed against the protesters at the early stages of demonstrations in Minneapolis. And someone asked, why were these protesters being treated differently by police. And I responded in the post because those white militia, right-wing militia bigots, they are armed and police seem to know better about approaching them in the way that they approach us. And I have to be honest with you, family. I say this with some hesitation, some frustration, some angst, some trepidation. I feel low in my spirit having this feeling. I have arrived at a place where my humanity and sense of peace has been gravely challenged. I am loathed to be at a place mentally and spiritually where it wouldn't be a sad thing for me to see a thug with a badge shot, brutally beaten, killed, and snatched away from this side of existence. Where I am now, regrettably, is that, no, it would not be a sad thing, but strangely a moment of justice. I hate that I'm here and I'm feeling this. But it is a moment of justice that is constantly robbed from the mothers and fathers of young black men that were killed at the hands of thugs with badges. And in most instances, these folks, these Young black men, older black men, black women are unarmed, non-threatening. But because of some imagined fear or uh, some sinister need to exercise and exert control, that life, that black life was taken. Brothers and fathers and sisters and uncles and aunts imbued with melanated splendor whose hue of skin was kissed by the sun. We are tired of seeing their life snatched in agonizing and painful violence, all inflicted by a thug with a badge. 
We wrestle with the conundrum of protecting ourselves against thugs and gangs and criminals that share our hue of skin, only to be burdened by thugs and bigots with white skin that have the full weight of a system behind them. This is exhausting to us. How do we as a community process this injustice? That has longevity. How as a community have we even endured a history where all of this all too familiar trauma continues to vex our very existence in this country? I was preparing for this episode, episode four of The Fire in My Words, and I Waded through case after case, news account after news account. Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Jonathan Farrell, case after case, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery. I scoured years of notes and show prep scripts that tackled this very subject. I ruminated the uh, myriad of marches against police brutality and excessive force and unjustifiable homicide of black men by police that I participated in, in New York with Reverend Sharpton and what emerged from all of that reading and reviewing and pouring over the images that are still stuck in my mind. We are a traumatized community. We're not just victims of a system whose abusive vanguard and blue are constantly exerting their violence on our collective existence. We are enduring a trauma that appears to have latched to history and the cyclical nature of our pain simply tarries. It continues. It goes on. Whatever you're doing at this very moment as you are listening intently to this episode I want you to take a moment to close your eyes it's just a moment now if you're driving obviously you can't do that you gotta keep your eyes on the road but use your mind's eye as our ancestors would require I want you to just imagine your son your daughter, your mother, or your father, or your brother, lying to the ground, handcuffed, with three police officers forcefully holding them to the ground. The ability to move as your bodily instincts demand is snatched away. I want you to imagine hearing your loved one pleading for his mother to help. Pleading for room to breathe and take a next breath. Pleading to be relieved of pain. I want you to imagine the cries and the whimper and the sobs of agony. Imagine the life draining from the eyes as... Blood pours from the mouth and the last gasp of air is accompanied by a forced bowel movement. I want you to imagine 
In your mind's eye, the dehumanization at that moment, the humiliation, the hopelessness, the sheer pain and fear and dread and terror as four heartless thugs with badges, bigots and morons, mired in indifference and disregard and prejudice and stereotype and hatred. What would you do in that dreadful moment? What was George Floyd to do in that horrible moment except to plead for his life, to breathe? What do you want? I can't breathe. Please leave my dick. I can't breathe shit. Uh Bro, get up, get in the car, man. I will. Get up, get in the car. I can't move. I've been waiting the whole time. Get up, get in the car. Mama. Get up and get in the car right. I can't. Yeah, gave y'all the opportunity to get in, bro. I told you, you can't win. My knee. You can't win, man. I'm through. I know you are never. You didn't listen. Uh, I touched the phobia. Just My stomach hurts. Uh-huh. My neck hurts. Uh-huh. Everything hurts. Uh-huh. Ah, there's some water or something. Please. Please. Uh-huh. I can't breathe all the time. What should the crowd have done? What should have bystanders and witnesses to this murder have done during this moment? Usually when I address this issue, whether it's during my public affairs show on 105.3 and Praise 100.9 and 92.7 The Block or If it's during an interview or a conversation with colleagues in radio or community leaders of all stripes, by the way, I would rattle off a disclaimer about good cops. I would rattle off the disclaimer about bad training and the need to understand the pressures of policing. And it is there. Now, the only thing that I will say in this regard is that I have developed some really fantastic relationships with some really good police here in Charlotte and back home in Jersey. I've I've interviewed officers. I've interviewed chiefs of police and county sheriffs. Some of my childhood and high school friends are police. One of my martial arts teachers. We used to call him Lock Em Up Lou, but he was one of my senseis. He's been in law enforcement all of his adult life, led an entire department, led county and statewide law enforcement training and programs. So I am quite familiar and quite sensitive with what the job entails and the challenges that accompany carrying a badge and a gun. But let me be clear. There is a huge demarcation between the police that I know and the thugs we see with badges. Indeed, there are good police, especially African-American officers that are oftentimes having to wade through racial taunts and bigotry from white officers. In some of these departments, black officers have to balance a commitment to community while navigating being passed over for promotions because of white privilege and nepotism. Many of the black officers that I know that I'm familiar with have to endure being labeled by both bigots and blue. Cause if you don't 
uphold that blue wall of silence, you're castigated and identified and in many instances targeted. And these black officers are labeled by that and by people in the community that also sees them as enemy. Now, I'm not going to be an apologist, but I want you all to be mindful that an arduous terrain is being crossed by black officers. And oftentimes we unfortunately dismiss the pressures that they face. So I while not giving everyone a pass, I will suggest to you that we have to strongly consider how we behave with regard to looking at black officers. So what I will say to good police, you have a moral obligation to yourself and to the communities you serve to turn in the rotten apples and the bigots and the racists that are in your ranks. The blue wall of silence is no longer tenable. That blue wall is no longer a viable option in the context to building trust with communities you serve. So having said that, my ire is stirred against those bigots with badges, those thugs with a blue uniform and, and a gun and badges. The murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis bigots with badges, uh, Derek Chauvin and uh, Tal Thayo and Thomas Lane and Alexander Kuang, all four of these thugs are murderous. The indifference, the inhumanity shown toward George Floyd is not just startling to me. It was blatant. The eyes of Chauvin reflected a dark and sinister callousness and a disregard for human life. Black life. If you look in his eyes, albeit from uh, the lens of a camera, you can see there is a savagery and a viciousness that is only eclipsed by a malicious effort to inflict an unspeakable pain. On a man that was calling for his mother and for Thale to sit idle as his partner drained the life from George Floyd. It also reflects a heartlessness and a peculiar type of cruelty. And for the other officers involved, they also exhibited a cowardice and a disdain for a man whose last moment on this side of existence was a plea to be allowed to breathe. There's no equivocation on my part. This was murder. And inevitably this will permit an impunity at the expense of our lives if these officers get away with this. The lives of black men are in danger. If we can't convict a man who robbed this man with his knees, lives of our people in this country is in danger by thugs, bigots with badges. When you have the full weight and power of the state entrusted to thugs with badges, bigots in uniform and incompetent, poorly trained idiots with guns, who are mired in stereotype and imaginary fear when it comes to black people, it further demonstrates our collective trauma. 
And it is clearly evident, at least to me, that we family are not safe from police. Just think about how you feel when you're driving along the highway or along the street and you see an officer, particularly and especially a white officer. How do you feel? How do you react? You straighten up. You fix your posture. Do you entertain some thought of trying to be cordial and nice and um, have to sacrifice your humanity and your dignity just so that that bigot doesn't do anything to harm you so that you can return home? You fix your posture in a subservient and acquiescent position because you absolutely fear what's going to happen to you. I am tired of being in this position. So if a thug with a badge is shot or killed by a black man, I will not question the legitimate fear of that man that shares my hue of skin. I will not bat an eye or shed a tear or shake my head in shame upon learning that that black man towered above a thug with a badge and the blood is draining from his body. If it's done in the defense of his own life, I will not bat an eye. And it's sad that I'm here. Should I extend that same courtesy to black criminals as I wrote in my book? Perhaps not. But those of us that are in this position where we are exhausted can defend ourselves well. And you know that your life is being jeopardized and threatened. Now, look, if you are resisting arrest simply because you don't want to be arrested despite breaking the law, I can't arouse such sympathies. If you break the law, you must pay the price, whether it's a traffic stop or some egregious behavior. You are duty bound to comply with police officers. If you break the law, you break the law, family. That's the bottom line. But you also deserve dignity. You also deserve to be able and in the position to preserve your integrity. Where I depart is excessive force and brutality and overt efforts to harm people. Efforts to impose emotional and physical trauma and to victimize and perhaps even unjustifiably kill our people. Question becomes. In the context of the larger society and how that moment is viewed are the anxieties and the fears and the trepidation black people experience during interactions with police. Are those fears and anxieties legitimate? Are our fears of these often negative interactions equally considered with that of police or are as usual? Is our consternation and our dread and our fright and our fear, is all of that dismissed? And the answer to the latter question, oftentimes, no, most times, it is yes, it's dismissed. The largest society, particularly and especially whites, is indeed usually dismissive of our fears or at the very least have a cavalier attitude Toward these issues, my community is under siege 
by bad policing. And there is no substantive interest in completely overhauling this nation's law enforcement apparatus. And I'm afraid, family, that an escalation of tensions will only result. I'll leave it at that. As I said earlier, we are fast approaching that moment where people will no longer film excessive force by physically intervening to the detriment of the officers involved and themselves. There is a palpable anger and dread that is seething beneath the surface of the black community. And I'm afraid this anger is going to eventually lead to unfortunate circumstances especially when a thug with a badge is not convicted of murdering our loved ones. When there's an unjustified killing of an African-American by police, the familiar playbook is trotted out, and I think that's what larger society counts on. Small and large protests, calls for justice, chants and expressions of outrage, bereaved families of the slain, tearfully flanked, Civil rights leaders as they plead for justice department intervention and while marches and contained riots draw television cameras, the sturdy structure of indifference endures. Just ask the families of Philando Castile and Jonathan Farrell and Trayvon Martin and Sandra Bland and Catherine Johnston and Sean Bell and Eric Garner and Rekha Boyd and Amadou Diallo and Michael Brown. Kimney Gray and Kenneth Chamberlain and Tavares McGill and Tamir Rice and Ayanna Stanley and Freddie Gray and Timothy Russell, Melissa Williams and Oscar Grant and John Crawford III and countless others. And you add to the list Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd and so many others around the country that have not been filmed. 14-year-old kid being pummeled by a hawking, bald police officer thrown around like a rag doll. His families are all too familiar with the long and arduous road for justice. And while they are clinging to a fleeting hope that their loved one's killer will meet justice at the end of the day, there is deep disappointment and despair. That's the result. Thugs and bigots with badges have unfortunately been allowed to continue to operate unabated. And here's the sad truth, family, as I began closing out. The black community doesn't enjoy the kind of relationship with police as experienced by white families, especially if wealth and political connections and white privilege is at play. This demarcation in service and treatment is evident in traffic stops, during foot patrols, bike patrols, and a wide array of interactions. White people enjoy the benefit of doubt regardless of behavior or criminal activity. And you know, social media is a good thing, to be honest with you. It can be a bane sometimes. But it is often replete with countless videos of police interactions with white citizens that demonstrates a level of discretion and patience not afforded to people of color. During those interactions, there's a deference. We all see it. Even in our own lifestyles. 
this deference, this cooperation is given, even when tensions have escalated. I've seen so many videos, family, where white guys are challenging police during traffic stops and they spout off disrespect and disregard toward that badge and that uniform and that authority. And the same holds true when white men reach for or draw their gun on police. The likelihood of that individual being shot and killed is significantly less than an unarmed black man being shot and posing no threat to police. We know that to be true. When white armed protesters and militia pointed their high capacity guns at federal officers doing a standoff in Nevada. I remember that y'all remember this a few years back. The discretion exercised by police was astounding. These friends groups actually took position and hurled verbal insults and threats at police, yet not one person was killed. In the last few years, there were a number of cases where white men actually threatened to shoot police, yet it ended with an arrest, not death. You juxtapose what happened to George Floyd with this white guy that I think he killed like two, three people. In one instance, George Floyd's life was snatched away literally by the tire of the car. Right, right in that vicinity. This white guy murdered two people. He's sitting handcuffed against the tire of the car. And a police officer reaches over and gives him something to drink. That's the juxtaposition that we are dealing with. And it's often the case that the imagined fear when they interact with our community results in the death of unarmed, non-threatening black men. But white guys can go out and kill folk and they get this deference. And another black family has to endure the cost and pain of burying a family member because of the imagined fear and stereotype and reckless attitude and bad training of police. But when it comes to white guys rampaging and killing folk, there is this deference provided and given. I'm closing out. Bigots with this insane seething hatred of our people have slipped through the cracks and are given a badge and a gun. These are the worst kind of police because they are not only bent on exerting control. There is again, this bigotry that is aroused when they interact with our people. It is seething and it is visceral. We've endured so much in this country. And in the last Several weeks as we had to muddle through heartbreak after heartbreak with Ahmaud Arbery's death, the execution of Breonna Taylor by police and the murder of George Floyd and the despicable and utterly senseless gun violence that claimed the lives of 10 people in Chicago and upward of 30 people now have to live with the pain and the agony and mental anguish of being shot during Memorial Day uh, weekend by some thugs who happen to look like you and I, there is this collective trauma that is plaguing our soul. And we are tired and we are exhausted. I no longer wish for injustice to be our enduring fate. 
It is time that we protect ourselves from thugs with badges and bigots with guns. Our humanity, our dignity, our life is at stake. And I want us to stop standing idly by as murder unfolds before our eyes. It is up to the crowd. It is up to the bystander and whatever you have to do to stop this murder from occurring, to stop this brutality on our people. No one person could or should do any of these kinds of things by themselves. But for the sake of our people and the life of the individual involved, stop these murders from happening by thugs with badges. I'm Ron Holland. This has been episode four of the Fire In My Words podcast. We'll talk with you soon. God bless. God bless.